The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. You can find it on page 13 in your bulletin, printed in its entirety. Before we read that, let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the many ways you speak to us. We thank you for these Holy Scripture words that we're about to read. We thank you for Ben being here today to deliver your message to us. We ask you to bless him and bless his words with wisdom and power as they come to us today. We ask you to fill us, your church, with your Holy Spirit so that we can listen, hear, understand, and be transformed. We thank you for these gifts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Starting with the first verse, Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. And I do also want to take... God, you from knowing about God to knowing him as my Father. So I am deeply thankful for this church. Um, I also want to encourage you. Um, I know that you are doing ministry in a context that is difficult for a variety of reasons. Um, but I want to let you know that God used your work in my life and has used it in many other lives as well. Um, I also bring you greetings from your sister church, uh, City Reformed in Milwaukee. Um, we are thrilled to partner with you in ministry. Uh, particularly in this uh, new campus minister position, um, but just in so many ways, um, we are thrilled to be your sister church. Uh, when we talk about authority and what authority looks like in our culture, we have a lot of different ideas that are floating around. 
Uh, one is the model of abusive power. Uh, people who have power use it to get money, to get sex, uh, to get status. Uh, and we're all, I think, very familiar with that uh, model of power and authority. There's also servant leadership, uh, corporate edition, strategies to inspire your workers and increase productivity, right? Uh, and there's power realism. That's the, just the idea that those in power make the rules, and those of us without that power just follow them. Uh, sometimes we sanctify that. Uh, we say those that God has put in power make the rules, and the rest of us just follow them. Or there's the anarchy model of authority, right? That says no one can handle power, and so no one should have it. And sometimes we sanctify that, and we say God has given us each uh, full autonomy and authority over ourselves, and so no one can tell me what to do. This morning, I am going to suggest that true authority is only comprehensible to us against the backdrop of the incarnation of God into our flesh in the person of Jesus. The Bible says lots of good things about Jesus, or about authority, but only the life death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus makes them, uh, all those things, reasonable or relevant, right? So let's start by looking at what Scripture says about authority. And here we're going to start in Genesis 1, all right? I'm going to read uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 30. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Normally we stop here, but I think these next two verses are really important. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, why are these verses so important? Um, because we're in Madison, I think it's worth pointing out uh, that kale is a green leafy plant, and that's animal food. Uh, but I don't think that's what, what God is really telling us here. Uh, God puts humans in a position of authority over all of creation, right? Um, but then he gives them instructions for what the animals are to eat, right? Right from the beginning, God's vision of authority, of what human authority should be, includes the flourishing of the animals, of all of creation, right? Humans are installed in this position of authority over creation, but it's for the flourishing of all of creation. And 
this is, I think, God introducing his guiding principle for authority, and that is love. Um, Aquinas describes the biblical understanding of love as choosing the good of the other. From the beginning, God's instructions for humans are to rule over creation in love, not just for the good of humans, but for the good of creation. And one of the effects that we immediately see in the fall, right, two chapters later, is that human or animals need to be killed so that their skins can cover the shame of the humans. Right at the beginning, our reign, our ruling over creation does not result in flourishing, it results in suffering. So the Old Testament, uh, as we go through it, is sprinkled with good and bad depictions of authority. In Deuteronomy 16, God commands Moses uh, to appoint judges who will judge the people with righteousness. They're supposed to judge with righteousness and justice. In Deuteronomy 17, God gives instructions for kings and how they are to behave. Uh, They are to be focused on God's law uh, and the flourishing of the people and not to lift themselves up. Then we see in the books of Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, they make two uh, contradictory arguments. Um, These books argue first that Israel needs a human king, right? What's the refrain of judges? There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see this refrain repeated as Israel cycles into deeper and deeper depravity. But the other theme of these books is that God alone is Israel's king and all others fall far short. And then we get to the Psalms, right? And we have a Psalm like Psalm 23 that identifies God as my shepherd. Or Psalm 72, a coronation psalm about a king in whose kingdom the poor and the oppressed flourish. But we get to the prophets, right? There's a major theme in the prophets uh, proclaiming woe to Israel's shepherds who have failed to lead, to protect and to nurture God's people. Particularly, Ezekiel 34 is is this rebuke clear. And I'm not going to reread John 10, but have it in mind here as I read part of Ezekiel. Uh, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. That is a a glaring condemnation of Israel's leadership, right? But the contrast against our text this morning, where Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd, right? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So I want to get to uh, my first point from this text this morning. And that is that all authority is Jesus' authority. Um, All authority and power ultimately belongs to Yahweh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The pre-incarnate Son is part of that, right? This is what we read in Colossians 1. For in him all things were created, that is, in Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? Christ, is, um, Christ is part of this divine being in whom all authority resides. All authority is Christ's authority. But in the divine nature, power and authority are united with love and used for the flourishing of all. Remember Philippians 2, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, I think we sometimes read this text and we think that Jesus became humble. Right? We think that Jesus, when he took on flesh, then he became humble. But that's not what the text says. Jesus was humble in his divine nature. He was humble before the incarnation. In fact, his humility is the reason for the incarnation. Humility and authority are not opposites in God. Jesus cared more for the good of his creation than for the cost he would have to pay to ransom that creation. So when we talk about authority, um, we need to understand the difference here between communicable and incommunicable attributes. All right? I know this is getting a little bit theological. An incommunicable attribute is something that God has that we cannot have, okay? So God, for example, is an independent being. Nothing created God, nothing sustains God except God himself. We are dependent beings. We needed to be created, we needed to be sustained. But there are also God's communicable attributes. Those are the things like love and compassion, and those are the things that we are supposed to become like God in, and the Holy Spirit... um, installs those in us. And 
Authority is one of God's communicable attributes. God intends us to use authority in the same way that he does. All right? And in fact, as Christ descends, he empties himself of his authority and God gives him authority. You're, you're going to read a number of texts throughout Scripture of Christ receiving authority and things like that. What that's talking about is Christ in his human nature receiving the authority of God. And in John 10, we see Christ embodying Yahweh. All right? Like how Judges tells us that we need a human king and that we need God to be our king, Ezekiel tells us uh, that God himself will be Israel's shepherd and that God's anointed one will be Israel's shepherd. In Christ, in the God-man Jesus, both of these things can be true. And there's a theme in John that the Son is of the Father, right? So John really likes this picture of Jesus as the Son of the Father. Uh, this, the depiction here is the perfect representative of the Father's interests is the Son, right? And we read that in John 10. Um, they are fully aligned in the divine will, right? John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one. So the picture of authority in John 10 is of divine authority and human authority. But what does that picture tell us? Authority is laying down one's life for the sheep. Jesus reveals the nature of God to us, including true authority. Christ's sacrifice is not a distraction from his glory and his authority. In fact, in Revelation 5, we read that heaven is praising Jesus. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Not in spite of being slain. Christ is not worthy in spite of his death. He is worthy because of his death. Jesus reveals the heart of God to us by laying down his life for us. This is what he says in verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. He's not saying the Father will love me when I do this. What he's saying is the Father loves me because I completely share his love for the sheep to the point that I will lay down my life. The Son is the perfect representative of the Father's interests. Jesus is given authority by the Father and uses it in perfect alignment with the Father's heart because he shares that heart. So the shepherd's authority is for the good of the sheep. And that's what Jesus says. I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. He contrasts that against the hired hand. Right, who cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father gives the authority and the charge together. Authority cannot be separated from love in the person of Christ. And this is also the call that Christ gives to his apostles. Right? 
feed my sheep. What does Jesus use to feed his sheep? His own pierced body. And that's what the apostles do. Peter, John, James, Paul, they all pour out their lives in the service of God's people. So, how do we view human authority in the light of Jesus? The first, the first thing we have to see is that authority is a good thing. Uh, this is not an easy thing to see in our culture. Authority is corrupted by sin, but it is part of God's good creation, and it is being redeemed in Christ. Um, we have a saying, power corrupts, right? And that's, that's upside down. We corrupt power. Um, but it is very, very ugly when it is corrupted. And we see authority abused in the church. Church leaders who don't want to be servants. And it's a problem to have church leaders who only want to lead from the front, but it is also a problem to have church leaders who aren't willing to lead from the front. We need to be shepherded, and Christ shepherds us through under-shepherds. Our churches are hurt when people seize authority, but they are also hurt when no one will exercise authority the way that humans were created to do. We see this in 1 Peter 5. Uh, Peter is writing to the church. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility and authority are not opposites, right? It, he's not saying, uh, Peter is not saying, those who are leading do not need authority, but those who are submitting, do, or excuse me, those who are leading do not need humility, but those who are submitting do. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Second, we again need to see that all authority is the authority of the ascended Christ. In Colossians 2, it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The ascended Lord, his unveiled divinity, and united to his humanity, is the head of all authority. God has not given up his plan for humanity to have authority. Through his spirit, he fills us, the body, whose human head is already in heaven. So when it comes to um, submitting to authority, uh, there are several sermons worth of material in the New Testament about submitting to authority. Uh, Jim specifically asked that he gets to preach those sermons. 
<laughs> just kidding. Uh, we can talk after the service, but I didn't want to get too long here. Um, those are important discussions, but usually we frame the question as, who has the authority that I must submit to? And I, I just want to humbly submit that I think that's the wrong question. Because the answer is just that all authority belongs to Christ. And so the obvious answer then is that we must submit to Christ's authority, regardless of who is wielding it. At the same time, when someone asserts authority that is not of Christ, we should challenge it if we are able to do so. So I think the better question is, how do we recognize Christ's authority? And I want to look at three characteristics from this text of Christ's authority. The first is that Christ's authority is received, not seized. Christ enters the sheepfold by the door. The false shepherd tries to get in um, over the wall. He tries to get authority that is not his. Or he tries to exercise authority beyond what has been given. Um, in the church, we have the laying on of hands. Um, and that's an important act that makes clear who has been given authority. The Belgic Confession uh, instructs us that all must be careful not to push themselves forward improperly, but must wait for God's call. It's one of the confessions of our church. Similarly, um, in our lives, right, we see this. Spouses give each other authority in their wedding vows. In the church, we offer ourselves to each other as well. As members of the body, we belong to each other. But we've also all been in situations where someone tries to exercise authority even though we barely know them, or tries to exercise authority farther than they're allowed. And these can be deeply damaging. The second characteristic of, of Christ's authority is that it is in the context of relationship. Christ calls the sheep by name and leads them. Right? That's what, that's what John 10 says. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Christ is known by the sheep. The false shepherd is not in relationship with the sheep. Authority requires knowing and being known. There's no way to exercise authority if we are ignorant of who the sheep are and what they need. In Christ's model, the sheep follow because they trust the shepherd. Um, my pastor, uh, Chris, who I think has preached here in the past. Um, he gives me this example. Um, there are two ways to keep the sheep inside the field, right? One is to roam around the outskirts of the field and whack any sheep who are wandering off. The other way is to stand at the well and call the sheep to him, right? And Jesus is that latter example. He offers us living water and invites us to drink it. Jesus actually likes the sheep, right? That's, that's something that I think uh, we miss sometimes. Jesus likes the sheep. He laments when they wander away, and he rejoices when he is able to bring them home. Jesus is in relationship with the sheep. He cares about the sheep. 
He likes the sheep. And the third principle of Christ's authority is that Christ's authority is guided by love. He seeks the good of the sheep. The thief, John 10 says, comes to steal and destroy. I, Christ, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in verse 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. For what did Christ receive authority? For the charge that he was given. To embody the heart of the Father in accomplishing our salvation. All authority is given in order to accomplish God's purpose. And that purpose is what we see in John 17. You, Christ, this is Christ's prayer, right? You have given him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The measure of loving authority is not whether it is sentimental. Anyone who has parented in a somewhat healthy way or has been parented uh, knows that sometimes a careful rebuke is necessary and it doesn't feel good. We had that on the way here this morning. Uh, my son was upset that uh, he has to remain strapped in his car seat the whole drive. Uh, we may be told things we don't want to hear, but the question is always, does authority bring us to eternal life? Does it help us encounter the Father and the Son? So in conclusion, I want to give you the, this encouragement to follow Christ's example. Um, and I want to frame it in terms of this verse from Revelation 3. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Humans belong on the throne of creation. That may sound a little heretical, but it's actually in Scripture. And we have done everything we can to enthrone ourselves, and we've failed. But with the incarnation of Christ, two really big things happen. First, in the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus, Human nature is redeemed from death and restored to its rightful place at the right hand of God. And the second thing is that God made a way for us to be united to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. We are his body. He is our head already in heaven. And as his body, he invites us to connect our lives with his, to live our lives as extensions of his life, to become truly human according to his new human nature. To reign like him in his risen life, he tells us that we must first conquer like he did. But how did he conquer? By being faithful to the Father's charge, even unto death. Exercising, submitting to, and challenging authority 
is a painful process. Even when we aren't engaging in sin, as we often are, we are still human with all the limitations and frailty that involves. The path to the throne is through the cross. That might mean extending grace beyond our limits. That might mean letting ourselves be wounded without retaliating. That might mean choosing to believe the best about someone when you know it isn't true. These things are only possible if our eyes are on the cross of Christ. So I'm going to just close with the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent Jesus into our world and gave him all authority so that we could see who you are, so that we could see your heart embodied, so that we could see your love for us in Christ's sacrifice. We pray that we may find our place in Christ's story, that we may understand how to join our lives, our story with his, so that we can be the body of him. We pray that we may understand better how to live this authority mixed with love and humility, that we may see these things come together in our lives, in our churches, in our families. And we pray that in all things we may keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.